You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Our scripture reading tonight comes from Revelation 12, 1 through 17. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, and was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. The serpent poured water, like a river, out of his mouth after the woman, to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. We live in uh, to the final uh, return of Christ and the new creation. So I've been saying that it's like, Revelations like this gigantic, like entering the Sistine Chapel where you have these massive canvases and on this wall you have the 
present evil age in which we live today. And there's a lot of depictions of that, and that's, that's including this passage. This is a depiction of the church fighting against the dragon. I'll talk more about who the dragon is. So you have that on this wall, and then you have on this wall, you have uh, the new creation. Uh, when the child has defeated the dragon, and the dragon is completely gone, thrown in the lake of fire. But between those two panels, you have this story, which is the turning point between uh, the left and the right panel. So this might be on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, where you have this depiction of the dragon being thrown down by a child. You know, it looks like this insignificant, at-risk birth in a backwater of the Roman Empire. It's a thing that no Roman historian would have ever thought to mention. Even the Jewish historian Josephus would have uh, no knowledge of this event. Um, but it is actually the cosmic victory of God. Uh, this described in this passage is the depiction of the turn of the ages uh, from the old age to the new age. And it ends this long battle uh, over this silent planet. Um, that's what C.S. Lewis calls the earth, uh, the silent planet, the bent world, the one place in the universe where people do not realize uh, that God is glorious, do not praise God. And this uh, ends the, the long battle for planet earth that has been deceived by the accusation of the devil and lives in a fog of lies, just gaslighted by the empire to think that there is no loving God. And uh, this enemy that keeps poisoning human relationships with God is defeated decisively at this point. And ever since this point, 2,000 years ago, uh, this victory has been resounding through creation. As we heard with Joy to the World, um, the far as the curse is found, his blessings are flowing. They've, they've been flowing for 2,000 years, and they will continue to flow. And we are not in a downturn right now, okay? Right now, um, the population of the earth grows at about 1%. Um, since uh, the year 2000, it's grown about 1%. The church is, uh, has grown at 2%. So the church is growing rapidly around the world, and yet we think we live in this fog of lies that everything's getting worse. Uh, that's nonsense. This victory uh, has been the turning point on planet Earth, and it, it will continue to grow, and it has grown. So this is a very exciting century and a very exciting year we're moving into, 2024, where we see the victory uh, grow. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen, but um, you, you won't find it in the headlines anywhere, but you're going to see it if you, if you go around the world or if you read uh, missionary reports. Uh, you'll see the, the, the kingdom growing massively. So first, I want to look at the battle, and then I'm going to look at the, the victory. The battle and then the victory. So verse 1, uh, the, the, there's basically three characters in this story. There's the woman, the dragon, and the child. So the woman, uh, in verse 1, is beautiful. She's glorious, majestic, clothed with the sun. It might be helpful uh, to try to imagine this. If you're a child, maybe draw it to just... Try to picture a woman clothed with the sun. So her clothing is like the sun. And uh, the moon is under her feet. These, by the way, are different gods that empires have worshipped. So um, what the author of Revelation is saying is that human beings are greater than all these idols, uh, the, these supposed gods of the sun and the moon. And then her, um, the 12 stars are a crown on her head. And this is depicting the glory of humans. And um, some people think this is Mary. Uh, I don't think it is Mary because later on we're going to find uh, this person running from the dragon. So I think it's the people of God, Old and New Testament. It's the same church, the church of the Old and New Testament. Um, it is Israel and all her glory. It is Yahweh's beloved bride. 
which he adores, which he woos to himself throughout the Old Testament, who he finds ravishing, just like this woman. Um, and she is majestic in her dominion because we're given dominion as humans over the earth. So that's the woman. Although she is majestic in dominion, she's crying out in birth pangs in verse 2 because there's this agony of the messianic uh, birth that is going on inside of her. Um, there's this groaning. The creation is groaning, waiting for uh, this child to be born into the earth uh, that will defeat the dragon, that will crush the head of the dragon. It was promised all the way back, uh, right at the fall in, in Genesis 3.16, that uh, right when the serpent, uh, this dragon, uh, lured humanity away from God, lured humanity, seduced us away from God, at that very moment that happened, God promised there would be a child that would crush the head of the serpent. And um, this woman is crying out in the birth pangs of that Messiah. And that's what Israel, that was what Israel was like. Isaiah 26, 17 describes Israel as a woman about to give birth, writhing in pain and crying out in childbirth. So Israel's entire existence was one of um, constant struggle, uh, endless oppression. Every single empire that came through that area just dominated Israel. You had first, you had the Egyptians, slavery and genocide. You had the Assyrians came sweeping through. Uh, they tortured uh, the Israelites. They, they forced them to convert uh, to the Assyrian gods by um, mingling Assyrians with the Israelites in the area of Samaria. The Babylonians came through. They destroyed the temple. They took all of the, the greatest, um, they kind of, it was like a brain drain out of Israel. They took all of the brightest Israelites, all the uh, strongest Israelites. They took them back to, to Babylon and made them um, servants of Babylon. And then finally Rome, which is the situation here, is Rome. Rome is now the, the latest empire that is um, creating the agony of the messianic birth pains. That's why she is in agony. She's flying into the wilderness, verse 6, uh, because God's people are always in exile on this earth. And this is one of the great problems with um, things like Christian nationalism that want the church to remain in power and to have uh, hegemony and to, to be the ones that kind of set the rules for the culture. Um, that is not aware of the fact that actually the church is always in exile. Uh, we're, we're always, um, a people of God are always a people who are at odds with the world because we're not like the world. The dragon rules the world. The dragon and the dragon's angels rule the world. And so we're always going to be people flying in the wilderness. We have this constant enemy of this great red dragon, verse 3. And um, that's just who God's people are. You see that uh, throughout. The, the, the Bible is always written from the point of view of a, of a small group of people who are being oppressed. That's Every single piece of literature in the Bible is written from that perspective. And so this great red dragon in verse 3. And, uh, you know, when I was like, 12, I loved dragons. I loved to draw dragons. I love the Hydra, who Hercules fought with seven heads. This dragon has seven heads and, and ten horns, and horns are signs of power. So again, think about the dragon and imagine the dragon. Seven crowns, which are uh, symbols of rule and authority. And it's kind of like one creature, but has multiple centers of consciousness. So it's, uh, it's a dragon that goes all the way from Egypt to Rome and still is with us today. So um, this is the, the arch enemy of the human race. Uh, this is the greatest creature that God made that became so arrogant that uh, 
seduced away a lot of the angels, apparently a third of them, to join the rebellion against God. Verse 4 says, his tail swept down one-third of the stars and cast them to the earth. And this is where we get the idea of um, all of these minions of Satan, all the different gods of the, the nations, all the idols of the Old Testament. These are all uh, part of uh, Satan's army, the, the accuser, the deceiver. And uh, this is where John Milton gets the idea in Paradise Lost. Of, if you read the very beginning of Paradise Lost, uh, Satan has brought all of these uh, angels down with him into Hades, and they're all trying to console themselves at the very beginning of Paradise Lost. But uh, he is not after military victory. You know, he does love to destroy, he loves to kill, he loves death, um, he loves all that stuff, but what he really is really after is to deceive you and to accuse you and to poison relationships. That's why verse 9 says that the ancient serpent is called Satan. And of course, ancient serpent refers to the, the one who was in the garden. It's that same serpent. And now here he is in uh, his full depiction of rage and wrath and red because there's blood all over him. And so the one in the garden is that same serpent, and he injected us uh, with accusation. He, he, he put that, like that dirty needle right into, our, right into our heart, and he injected us with the poison of deception and accusation. And he makes us think that these accusations in our head are from God. That's what he does. That's what he loves to do. He, he is... Um, the one who shatters relationships. Uh, he deceives people. Verse 9 calls him the devil, the diabolos, the deceiver of the whole world. He makes us paranoid. He makes us think that God is against us. That's what Eve began to think. That's what Adam began to think. I saw this movie uh, this past week called Beautiful Boy, which is about a drug addict. And uh, it depicts how the, the, the meth, crystal meth, made this child uh, began to think that his parents hated him and were against him and made him paranoid. And that's what the devil does to us. He's always making us think that God is against us, that God is out for us, um, that he does not want our best. And uh, if you've ever had a relationship with somebody in your life poisoned, you know the pain of that. That's happened to me before, where um, someone who had trusted me, who I loved, um, a friend, someone had come to that friend and, in a sense, seduced them. I mean, had poisoned their mind against me and uh, had said, Ben's not trustworthy, he's not what you think, you need to watch out for him. That happens. I mean, that, and, that, and it was incredibly painful. Uh, it's devastating. It was so devastating that I went right back and did it to them a few days later. I, I, I did the same thing. Um, I, I said something about them that was damaging. And it's, if you think about the words we say about other people, we can fall into that trap all the time. We actually very subtly can poison people's mind against someone else. In fact, if you think about what you're really doing, you're intentionally doing that a lot of time. Um, that you actually are intentionally trying to create a wedge between two people so that you can step in there. And that's what the devil does. And when you're doing that, you're doing his bidding. Like, he loves the fact that you're doing that. Uh, the, the vast bureaucracy of, of hell is bent on shedding trust and confidence in relationships, especially with God. It always starts with God. And so it says in verse 10, uh, they accuse us day and night before God. Uh, they're constantly inflaming the mistakes that we make 
Accusation is more than um, like legitimate guilt. There is a place for legitimate guilt. Accusation is taking a bad decision we make and turning that into an indictment of our essential character. And you know the difference when that happens. Where somebody says something to you and you take that little criticism and you make that about your essence. Like that's who you are, you're wrong, uh, you're shameful. So when I feel like uh, you know, I've missed something as a leader, I'm sloppy, uh, I haven't been responsible, you, know, you can improve as a leader, it turns into you are an incompetent poser. And I think we all know the way that Satan does that to us, uh, the accuser comes into our minds, and it makes us really unable to take even the gentlest criticism, because we're so touchy. Because anything that anybody says that's slightly negative, especially when they hit that one point, and Satan knows right where that one point is for you, when they hit that thing, that, that raw nerve ending, you just unravel completely. And then you can't take any criticism, because you're just wallowing in shame. So that's the battle, and without the birth of the child, we'd be dead. Like, there'd be nothing, there'd be no hope, uh, Satan would quite easily shatter all relationships. He would poison our relationship with God. He would spread distrust in the world. I mean, he would have won if not for this child. And so praise God for the birth of Christ uh, who has come into the world and is mending things. He's bringing things back together. He's healing relationships. That's the second point, the victory of Christ. Uh, verse seven, war arose in heaven and Michael and his angels fought the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Now that, this is, um, this can't be before the fall. So this cannot be um, before Satan tempted us in the garden. I used to think that, but clearly the way it's written, it's got to be after that. So when is this time in verse 7 where there's this war in heaven, and Michael and his angels are fighting the dragon and his angels? I think that's the period before Christ came. This is the period during the history of Israel, but also the patriarchs where there was no Israel, and before the flood, that whole period of time, there's been this war going on in heaven. And you see this in the book of Daniel, especially, where Michael is fighting the prince of Persia. Like you see the kind of spiritual fireworks going on. This war is going on behind the scenes all the time, and we don't see much of it. But apparently there's this back and forth, and it looks like it was a stalemate. Because at this point, there's no clear victory. And um, the dragon during the whole period of Israel, I think, was waiting uh, for that one predicted child who would crush his head. I think that was his main goal, was to find, to try to detect that child and then snuff that child out. Because he knew that that was going to be the thing that could, of only thing that could crush his head. The child promised in Genesis 3.16. So he's searching everywhere, the dragon, for this great enemy that he knows is coming from Israel, but he doesn't know who it's going to be. He knows this Messiah is going to crush his head, and so he's standing before the woman with his mouth open to devour the child. You just picture the dragon, these giant teeth, seven heads, ten horns on each head, uh, these crowns, standing before that woman just waiting to devour. His whole, he's completely bent on that child's destruction. And we see that when Jesus is born with Herod and the slaughter of the innocents. We see that dragon trying to destroy the child. He stood before the woman to devour the child, verse 4. But if you've seen the Lord of the Rings, you know that Sauron was looking everywhere for the ring except for the one place that it was. Because the people carrying the ring were too small and too humble for him to notice. The hobbits. 
So Sauron's gazing all around Middle-earth to try to find the, the ring that can be destroyed and bring him down, and he cannot detect it because he's too proud. And the same with the dragon. He's looking everywhere in the halls of power for the birth of the child, but the child's being born right under his nose in Bethlehem. And that's the child that will defeat him. And it says in verse 5, she gave birth to a male child. So simple. Um, so typically understated in the Bible. She gave birth to a male child. And yet that is, uh, that's D-Day. So if you know about uh, D-Day in World War II, that was the day where 1,200 planes, 5,000 boats, and uh, 1,600, I mean, um, 160,000 troops came across from England to Normandy. Imagine this, I mean, there's pictures of them coming. It's, it's like it takes your breath away to see uh, this Operation Overlord in action on D-Day. And um, that is the invasion of the, uh, the Axis powers by the Allies. That's when, that's, a, that's when Hitler went down. That's when he lost. As soon as they took ground uh, on Europe, in Normandy, he was done. And when, when this child was born, that's why there are these legions of angels flocking to this child. Like, the shepherds have got to be wondering, there's never been angelic fireworks like that. I dare you to find anywhere in the Old Testament where there's anything like the outpouring of heaven that you see in Bethlehem. You're not going to find it. There's nothing like it. That doesn't happen every day in the Bible. That's why there are all these legions of angels flocking to that birth of that child, because that is the big deal in heaven. Now, again, Josephus didn't note it. Uh, Suetonius, Tacitus, Pliny, no Roman historian noted it. Nobody cared about it, but that's what the angels were all about. That's what history was all about. Because it says in verse 8, the, uh, the empire was defeated. Satan and his angels were defeated at that moment, just by the birth of that child. It's like, again, that's D-Day, it's over. And this is, um, I love the paradox, which is so typical of the book of Revelation, this gentle, tiny child, you know, born to the Virgin Mary in a manger, in an inn, in Bethlehem, annihilates all of Satan's armies, all of the arguments, they completely fall, just crushes the, the fiendish logic of hell is crushed by the birth of that child. It says in verse 8, there was no longer any position for them in heaven to accuse because the accusation was snuffed out by that birth. Because from that point till this day, you look at that child and you say, how could that child be lording power over us? How could that child be a threat to us? How is that child trying to dominate us? I mean, when God reveals his face in the face of Jesus, this baby at Bethlehem, it just snuffs out all, those, all the gaslighting of Satan, all of the deceptions of Satan, it says in verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down. And that's a very powerful word uh, in basketball. To throw down is a dunk where you cock the ball back. And there's a there has to be a defender underneath you or it's not, you're not throwing down. And you cock the ball back and you just throw down the basketball right in the face of the defender and they fall backwards. It's also described as to posterize because you're, you put it on a poster when that happens. And so this is a very violent word. This is one of sports most violent words, and yet it's a tiny baby going up like a 45-degree angle and dunking on a dragon, a great red dragon. And that's the paradox of the book of Revelation, um, that 
the victory of God is guaranteed, guaranteed by the blood of the lamb. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb. I mean, again, the most gentle, harmless creature on earth being sacrificed, you know, without even crying out, led like a sheep to the slaughter, silent. Verse 11, that is how we conquer the dragon. In the book of Revelation, this paradox is everywhere. It's so brilliant that you have these massive warlike images combined with pure, sacrificial, meek, and gentle love. And that's, that's the combination that the church has to own, both of them. You know, we can't get rid of the military language because it's there, it's real. We can't get rid of the sacrificial, humble love. Whenever you start to lean one way or the other, you're in trouble. But when you bring them together, um, then the blood of God, the very blood of God himself, can actually snuff out the accusation. That's how you get rid of the accusation. Um, it's like an oblation. You just put that hot, I had that done to my heart, and you just snuff it out. Um, that, that one place, uh, you cauterize it, it's gone. All the deception, all the accusation, when you think that the blood of God Almighty, the Son of God Almighty, has, has paid for your sin, you can actually psychologically take that away. Like if it wasn't the blood of God, if somebody just says, forgive yourself, there's not enough power there. You can't do it. Because you know you've transgressed a law. But when you say the blood of God has paid for your sin, then psychologically you can actually believe that. That God shed his very blood and that has power. In verse 10, it says, salvation and power and authority have come because of the blood of the lamb. That combination of power and gentleness. True power and true authority is endless self-giving. The father's endless self-giving of his son that crushes all the violent messages of condemnation that just inflame our mind, throbbing just with all of this shame and Jesus comes and, and he said, the word of our testimony, verse 11, the word of our testimony conquers these messages. We've got to tell each other the good news. We've got to tell each other the blood of Christ has atoned for your sin. And the thing that you're feeling right now, actually, you know, that's not the only sin you have. You have a lot more than that, but that doesn't matter. Uh, God still loves you. So we've got to proclaim this. Uh, you're clean in God's sight. You're you're. Your um, robes have been washed white. You are holy and innocent and righteous in his sight because of the blood of the lamb. The father is not against you. He's not repelled by you. He's actually smitten by you. Verse one, going back to verse one, clothed with the sun, the moon under your feet, crowned with stars. Tell that to yourself. Tell that to other people. That's how God sees you. Beautiful, majestic, with dominion, upright, whether you're famous or you're homeless or whether you're a doctor or a patient, whether you're you know, blue or red, lean left, lean right, whether you're in a coastal area or a flyover state, it doesn't matter. Uh, God says you are this beautiful woman clothed with the sun, the moon under your feet, a crown of stars on your head. If you hear that you're beautiful enough time from the Lord, you actually start believing that and you get powerful. And uh, that love can make you really resilient and, uh, and, and very hard to control, very unafraid of anything, even death. I love how when the testimony of the lamb pierces their hearts, they also join in and they do not love their lives to the point of death, verse 11. In other words, they're willing to give up. The same way the son gave up all his rights, all his privileges, 
that his followers begin to get to join him in that self-giving love, self-forgetful love, that bounteous, overflowing love of the, of the son, uh, and we become self-forgetful. We give ourselves away without need of attention-seeking. You know, so many of our acts of service are very much attention-seeking or virtue signaling. So over Christmas, um, my wife was upstairs, and she called down, you know, can you, do, can you see if we have any Tylenol down there? And for one thing, uh, neither of us like it when the other person calls from a room several, you know, several rooms away. So that was already kind of irritating me. Um, but I was also in the bath. So that, was, that added to the irritation. So I said, okay, I'm going to get out of the bath now and get that Tylenol and bring it up to you. And so I had to let her know, uh, I had to let her know how much that would put me out to have to, to do that. And that is not, that is not loving your life to the point of death. That is not this endless self-giving, um, unaware of what you're doing, getting to join in the Father's love and giving the Son without any demand. Uh, the Father gives his beloved Son without any grudge, not reluctantly, not to show off. It's the very essence of his nature to do that. He's been doing that forever. He's always been loving the Son. And so the Son loves us as the Father loves the Son. And right when the dragon thinks that he has finally got the Messiah in his jaws, you know, at, at the cross, he's finally clamped down, and he's got him, and he's crunching him up. You know, he's, so he's chewing up the Messiah on the cross in every possible way he can. And that dragon got a hold of that, and it's like, a, you know, the, the way killer whales play around um, with seals. They just throw them in the air, and they just kind of mercilessly... The devil's just throwing him around in the air, back and forth. And yet, at that moment, when he is just mauling uh, the lamb, that is right when everything's backfiring on him. That is right when he's being conquered by the blood. Because even as we are cooperating with Satan in the destruction of this, uh, this lamb of God, at that very moment that we should be most condemned, most accused, the Father is loving us most deeply, and just shredding the lies of the accusation and saying, no, 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 it's, it's not true. I love you at the point of your greatest betrayal. And that's what we celebrate at this meal, uh, that on the night he was betrayed, on the night that uh, we were really at our worst and we most deserve condemnation, and we do deserve condemnation. I mean, we do deserve condemnation. But at that moment where we most deserved condemnation, we received justification and blessing and righteousness and wisdom. And Jesus took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. I'm doing this. Do you not realize I'm doing this freely for you? I love you. My life's not being taken from me. I'm giving it of my own free will. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And so whenever we eat the bread and drink from the cup, we are conquering, we're throwing down on the devil and his accusations. And I hope that as we come up here, it will, it will cauterize all of that throbbing shame in your mind. Whatever you're bringing here tonight, I, I pray and hope that uh, this, this meal will just silence the accusation. So if you, um, I always like to say when I came to church, uh, when I was little and didn't believe, 
I didn't like this. This part really made me nervous because I didn't know what to do. And so you might be in that position right now. What do I do right now? And I would just say, if you want this story to be true, uh, if you believe this story, or you're struggling to believe it, but you really want it to be true, um, that this is your heart, that you want Christ to forgive you and take away your shame, then come and receive this meal. It is free. It is a free gift of God. There are no strings attached. Uh, there's, there's no um, Venmoing needed. There's, there's no like card reader up here. You don't have to bring any cash up here. That would be absurd. This is a free gift from God. But if you're someone who's not quite sure yet, if you really believe like you're not ready to do that, then we don't want to put any pressure on you at all. Do not feel any pressure to come and partake. Um, it would be a bad idea because we take this very seriously. This is actually the presence of Jesus Christ. So don't partake of this uh, just willy-nilly, you know, casually. This is a really serious thing. So let me pray for us as we come to the table. Father, uh, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Blow away all of our doubts, all of our fears. Um, throw them down, Lord. Shred these lies. As we go into the new year, I, I pray this will be the last thing we think about in 2023 as we go to bed. Uh, how deeply loved that we are the woman clothed with sun, the moon under our feet, and stars on our head. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um Remember, we love these rascals.